Good morning. Uh, scripture reading for today is from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, page 787 in the Pew Bibles. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. Uh, he took the disciple with him and had discussion daily in the lecture hall of the Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So yes, my name is Jackson O'Brien. I'm a student at Alberta Bible College. And if you didn't see, there is a uh, uh, thing at the back. Sorry, my words aren't here yet. Hopefully they'll come. My words are here, not in my brain. They're on this piece of paper. But there's a little booth back there, and there's some pamphlets and stuff. If you want to take a look at and uh, learn a little more about Alberta Bible College, that's there if you need it. So you as a congregation have been going through the book of Acts, and this is great because I love that book. And I got a chance to take a course from Dr. Fraser, Dr. Ron Fraser at Alberta Bible College in Acts, and it was a super course. And I think they offer it through Pace, maybe, maybe not, but it was super. And if you ever get a chance to do it, I would highly recommend it. That's my little spiel. Um, so yes, we just read that scripture reading from Acts 19, and we're going to be in Acts uh, 19, 23 to 41, this time about the riot in Ephesus. Um, let's stand to pray, though, before we, before we get into the scripture. Father, thank you for this time, that we can come together and learn more from your word and um, encounter you. And um, we have all of our contexts and all of our stuff of life that we're going through, and um, we come to you at this time looking to, to have answers and looking to find you more in the midst of all of the stuff that we're going through. So we bring all our cares to the cross, and we... Uh, we open our hearts so that you may encounter us and you can confront us with your message you have this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was, um, when I was a little boy, I, uh, I, would, I got into a little bit of a confrontation with my brother at times. I have an older brother. His name is Ian. And I would bite him. I was a biter when I was younger. I was 12 years old. Just kidding. I wasn't 12 when I bit my brother. But... I would bite my brother sometimes, and I would just sink my teeth into his arm, and my DNA would get all over that. My mom eventually picked up onto this, but Ian was so good about it. He would just cringe and just take it so violently when I would sink my teeth into his arm. He would just bear it. He wouldn't tell mom. He didn't tell mom anything. He just sort of held it in there. And so I just kept doing this because I enjoyed doing it. I had new teeth, and I wanted to use them any place and anywhere that I could. And so he would just cringe and hold it in, and he wouldn't even tell mom. But then, eventually, my mom sort of figured this out, because I didn't eventually eat my brother, which is a good thing. But uh, my mom found this one situation, and she said, Okay, Ian, you're going to bite Jackson back. And I was so scared, because I had bitten him so many times, and I was afraid that he was going to bite me the hardest ever. But he still remains that valiant and gentle brother, even in these confrontations, he placed his teeth on my arm and just gave a soft, gentle, like a little taste. And I cringed, but nothing happened. I thought, oh, I'm getting away with this. This didn't hurt at all. But then mom said, bite harder. But Ian, still being the gentle brother, he resisted my mom's will to hurt his little brother and still didn't bite me. 
So it would seem that I was going to get away with this scot-free. But like a good mom, she ended up biting me herself. <laughs> and so I think I learned my lesson and I never tasted my brother again. But maybe you've been in this encounter before. Maybe you weren't a biter like me, but maybe there's some sort of confrontation that has happened in your life. Maybe you were the one who was um, being confronted upon a certain subject. This could have been at work with your boss or at school with your teacher or... Maybe your mom was telling you to clean your room, and confrontation happens. Either way, you were approached when in a threatening manner or not to get something done. Or maybe you, have, you yourself were the person that needed to confront some people on issues. Maybe you were someone that said, you got to get back into shape. you got to start doing your stuff at work. And you've been known as the great confronter. And nobody wants to be in the room with you because all you have to say is stuff that's confrontational. But confrontation happens, whether it's inherently a good or bad thing it happens and it must be dealt with accordingly maybe you've experienced negative or constructive confrontation in the past for we all have different contexts we all have different stuff of life that's going on confrontation can be threatening and lots of times not so positive in consequence now there are many topics many encounters which i don't think i'm adequately adequately able to address in this but in acts 19 we see what the effects are when the gospel steps into the world, and it doesn't receive it so well. We will see how Jesus' message of good news is handed to a culture where confrontation occurs. We will discover from this passage in Acts 19 how the gospel confronts culture. If there's four words that I'll get you to remember this morning, it's the gospel confronts culture. Can you say that with me? The gospel confronts culture. You're going to ace the final exam. So thankfully, in this case, lots of Wiser people have done study in this than me, and one of them is John Stott. And in his commentary, I get a lot of my stuff on this, and it's a really great commentary that he wrote on it. Um, And he describes this narrative in Acts, this riot, as its origin, and then its course, and its termination, and what all happens when the gospel confronts that in this. So if you haven't done so, here we are in Acts 19, verse 23, and I'll begin reading from there. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen of related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led large numbers of people, large and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Seen from the text, the origin of this disturbance concerning the way, when it says concerning the way, it means concerning the Christian movement. The Christianity was first called the way. In, in the book of Acts in the early church. Um, so this disturbance uh, rose from economical reasons. They rose from money-related reasons, or as your American pastor would say, the Benjamins. That's why this disturbance arose. Silversmiths were making little idols of the goddess Artemis from ancient Greek mythology, the daughter of Zeus. A temple for Artemis was located in Ephesus and provided key economic stability to the city. And this is the initial place in which we see this probably this leader Demetrius of the, of the silversmiths guild, discovered that this problem that a fellow named Paul claims that man-made gods are no gods 
at all. And Demetrius says that large numbers of people in Ephesus have been convinced by Paul, which would majorly affect the sale of Artemistic merchandise, Artemistic swag. Paul and his disciples had been staying in Ephesus for two years, and the Christian movement, the way, had caught on so much that people apparently did not have need for those little man-made gods anymore. And Demetrius and his workers were feeling it. This gospel was affecting Demetrius and his friend's paycheck. As we will see, Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths speak out against the preaching of the gospel and want to play and want to do away with it because they aren't making any money, let alone accepting the message of Paul and his companions. So this is an example of when the gospel and culture, they butt heads. The needs of some of the occupations of this world are in opposition to the gospel. But concerns about money are only the start of the confrontation of the gospel with culture. Demetrius further fleshes out his other concerns that the gospel of Jesus confronts. Because of the message of Paul and his companions, there were dangers, as John Stott puts it, that the silversmith's trade would lose its good name, their temple its prestige, and their goddess her divine majesty. So this showed that money-like interests were now being cloaked with patriotic. So what arose from economic reasons, money-related reasons, was now being cloaked with patriotic, or uh, love for one's country. Patriotic and religious reasons. Demetrius and the silversmiths would lose their good name if they complained that their business was at, the stake, was at stake because of the gospel. So they publicly described the problem to be dealing with their nation and beliefs. Apparently the gospel is confronting more than just economic money issues, but also the practices and the belief of the nation itself. The gospel is confronting the whole entire culture in this text. So what happens? Let's read on to see where this confrontation leads. Reading from verse 28. When they began, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this portion... We just learned the origin that was economic, but then turned patriotic and religious reasons that the gospel was confronting culture. And now the course of this, it starts with, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and ends with, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the course of this part. Once the people get going, the mob mentality can take over quite easily. And here it did too. Two of Paul's companions were dragged into the crowd and into the theater, which has been said to accommodate at least 25,000 people. Now, I think I have a slide up there that I would like to show. That's the theater. That's the theater in Ephesus that could accommodate 25,000 people. It's, a lot of the remains still are there, and it's quite neat, I think. Thank you. And the, uh, were there 25,000 people there during the riot? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but a riot was going on there, which was crazy enough that the disciples did not even want uh, the people to venture in, even though he wanted to. Um, as you may have seen in other times in the book of Acts, as you've been going through this as a congregation, Paul uses his Roman citizenship as means for safe and just treatment. He may here be thinking the same thing. 
Paul also has some connections with officials of the province, and they also advise him against him going into the mob. And according to the Greek term, asiarchs, that's used, that Luke describes in this text, it's people of very high standards. He, Paul had high friends in high places, unlike Garth Brooks, who has uh, friends in low places. And these officials, these high officials of Paul, knew what they were going when they telling him not to venture into the mob. So it was wise of Paul to listen. Instead, a confused mob continued to dominate this encounter. And since there was no speaker, they, the Jews pushed Alexander forward. And Alexander was a Jew, and he wanted to speak on behalf of the Jews. And the point of that was so that the Jews could be separated from the Christians. They, the Jews wanted to show that the, show the Ephesians and the, and the worshipers of Artemis that the, the, the Christians and the Jews are, are a distinct sect. They're, they're separate people. But then when the Ephesians realize, oh, he's a Jew, he doesn't worship Artemis either, they say, hey, get out of here, and they continue to shout in unison for two hours, great is Artemis to the Ephesians, right? Um, so the, the riots there, and um, what is this gospel doing, you may be asking? What is this gospel doing? It's confronting culture. Well, how, how does this uproar cause about it? Not only does it seem that the gospel is confronting culture, but causing public uproar. A question I may ask towards this is whether or not many people in uproar and riots know why they are there, because the text says most of the people did not even know why they were there. Um, so this may not pertain to the gospel, per se, but I think there's a general encouragement within there that it might be wise to either, one, not be involved with riots at all, or two, know why the riot is happening and getting educated towards it and handling it accordingly, not just being swept up in something just because. So, if you find yourself in Vancouver, and you don't like the Canucks, and it's Stanley Cup season, maybe it's best to stay indoors. I could say that. Well, let's read on to see how this gospel continues to confront this Ephesian culture and where it terminates. Let's read from verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. The uh, origin, course, and termination of this confrontation was diffused by an intelligent clerk. As tensions rose, the consequences of rioting action would increase because the Romans would come in and silence the mob on their own terms. A riot to the clerk seemed to be a rash and uh, a rash thing, and he wanted to handle this in a judicial manner with pro-councils and legal assemblies to absolve this whole thing logically. As the author of Acts has done many times previous, Luke, the author of Acts, here portrays the government of Rome in a favorable light. Uh, if you remember, very, very early on in chapter 1, Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Roman official. As the gospel confronts culture, governments and societies are also involved with that culture. For they are part of culture and society. And on this occasion, in the termination of this writing event, the Roman government is protecting the Christians. We see the Roman government here being portrayed in a favorable light. The city clerk is seeing that there is no reason for this riot and that those two companions of Paul who were seized, Gaius and Aristarchus, were innocent. 
We'll just read to see how they were. And so what does the clerk say in verse 39? There is anything further you want to bring up and must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So as the people are dismissed and they go on their merry way, being confronted by the, co- by the gospel on many levels. Now, um, I'm not exactly sure how many of you here are living in Calgary right now, making um, artemistic silver-like gods here at this time. But if you are, I would be really interested in how that business is going. But since I could probably fairly assume that most of you are, aren't. So how does this gospel affect us? This gospel that confronts culture and society, how is it going to affect us on our level? Well, I think for starters, we need to ask the question, how has the gospel confronted my life? How has the gospel confronted your life? The first problem arose that arose for the silversmiths of Artemis was that they were doing business that would not be congruent to gospel work. Because of the nature of the gospel, and it's called to live in a Jesus-oriented manner, our businesses will come into conflict with our beliefs if they are not done in fair means. If you are buying or selling adult videos, or if illegal drugs or other questionable things within your business, that comes into confrontation with the gospel of Christ. And even beyond our daily, regular buying and selling of products, we must ask bigger questions of how the gospel confronts and what the gospel says about economic globalization. I learned that word. I still don't know what it means, but let's talk about it for a second. Is the purpose of my job to maximize my company's profits and thereby maximize my salary? Is that the purpose? This may be the case for some if, if, if that's all that matters, but now that the gospel touches the economy, our spending and consuming start to take different forms. In the words of one of my professors, since I'm learning stuff, I'll share it with you. I'm not learning economic globalization, but I'll learn what I, what I have. In the words of one of my professors, how easy it is, is it to say, I won't buy this even though I can't afford it? Or how easy is it to say, I'll go without my new pair of jeans, eating out excessively, or one double-double per week, and I'll give to the poor? This may be some difficult teaching to handle, but the gospel which the early church preached required surrendering our economic wills to God and to be wiser stewards of all that he's given us. And the other thing, too, that we found in the text, the Asiarchs, the people that Paul knew in the higher-ups. He knew high people in high places, unlike Garth Brooks. But what I would like to point out is he also shared the gospel with these people. You're going to discover in Acts 24 what he does with Felix and shares the gospel with him there. We need to be relational with people who are in high-class society and up there. That's an important thing that we find in the text, too. But how would this gospel touch ground in your lives, in the, in the two blocks of Maryvale community? How can you spend less and give more, whether it's less time on Facebook or YouTube, and more time with your church, family, and community? How can you be involved with government decisions that are promoting kingdom values? There's I think there's an election coming up. I see all these little colorful things everywhere. How can we as Christians be involved? When this gospel confronts culture, how are we going to be involved with that? Are we going to step back and let it happen? But the government, the Roman government in the text said that it protected them. And this was a positive thing for the disciples at that time. How is it, how are we going to step into this, this conversation of government and politics? You could write a letter to your alderman. If there's a question that comes up, you'd make a phone call, I think. The gospel has confronted 
our culture, is confronting our culture, and will continue to confront our culture. But Jackson, how do I keep up with all of this? How do I know that it's, as it continually does, it's this actively confronting thing in life? How do I keep up with this? Well, I think that it's important that um, we best be in tune with the one who was the great confronter himself, Jesus. The good news Jesus brought is about love, joy, self, self-serving, and self-giving, and sacrifice. Jesus is the great confronter of our world as he does so in hopes to bring peace and restoration of all things. In order to be like Jesus, we need to shed off things that do not belong to him. Self-serving pride and building our own kingdoms are naming a few. Jesus' world is a lot different than our world if we don't understand him and see where he's coming from. We must learn more about him and come close to him in order to see what he's getting at. We're serving alongside of a person within this gospel. And in, there's this quote from a guy named Oswald Chambers in the early 1900s. Um, so about 100 years ago, he said, we serve a person and not a cause. Yes, the gospel comes in, this message comes in that Jesus delivered, and it seems like a cause, and it confronts our culture. But the good news is a person. The good news is a person, God, who became man, who became flesh, and dwelt among us. The gospel, the good news, is this person. It's Jesus. We're serving a person. We're serving alongside of a person. And I'll just, I'll just wrap up with this story here. I was living in the wonderful, booming metropolis of Edmonton, Alberta, um, two years ago. I was taking my first year of Bible schooling there. It was just a one-year program. And because it was a one-year program, our class got to make hoodies. And on these hoodies, we could decide what sort of style we wanted, what color we wanted, what, you know logo or brand or whatever we wanted on it. We got to decide what the company was going to do. So we, we came together as a, as a group and we decided to pick a hoodie that we wanted to. We had all, everything lined up and it seemed that all systems were a go. But then one of my friends and fellow classmates, let's, let's call him Theophilus because his name starts with a T. Theophilus comes in here and he sort of disrupts this whole Thing that's going on. We have everything in order. We have everything lined up. We know what we're going to do. But then he goes and, like a smart guy that he is, he goes and does research on this company, on this company that makes the hoodie. And as he's doing his research, he found that a lot of their advertising campaigns were a bit racy and, if I may say, sexually explicit. And he, and he felt convicted about this. He's like, I don't know if, if we as a Christian community can support a company like this. And he thought that through a little bit. And then he went to one of our professors and he brought this up that there's this company that's, that we are supporting that doesn't have exactly kingdom values and it looks like confrontation is happening. And so he brought it up with the student body and, um, and some, just like the ride in Ephesus, confusion started. Um, some disagreed and said, yeah, we've already made up our mind and, um, and to do what we want. Can't we just go along with it? Others said, this is such a trivial, small little manner. Why can't I wear what I want? And then there was others like me who did not even know why they were there. <laughs> I didn't exactly know what was going on, but there was this confrontation that happened. And then Theophilus, my friend, he comes in and brings us to the side of things. He says, no, the gospel, we're representing, we embody this gospel now. We have been commissioned by Jesus to do so. And as it confronts culture... We need to continue to stand for it and let it confront culture. And um, Theophilus knew that his side was the unpopular. 
the uncool side because it would have been easiest to get the stuff that we wanted. But sometimes the hardest thing and the right thing are the same. And since he stuck with it and brought it up, we ended up changing the hoodies. Our class was very glad and thankful that he brought it up earlier rather than to have a class of Bible students sporting hoodies which endorse not so immoral lives. I think we can certainly learn a few things from my friend Theophilus. And I want you to imagine for a moment what it would look like if we decided to consider things and make decisions like that. What if when the gospel confronted culture and its practices, we made the decision that was a step toward faith and values of the kingdom? Paint a, a picture with me. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Imagine if you decided to engage in, in the discussion of what happens when faith meets life. Imagine if in your daily life you decided to live out the gospel values even when they confront societal and cultural things, even when they are the unpopular and uncool thing. Sure, it may be a little harder, but remember about which the good that was brought and the evil avoided because my friend Theophilus decided to speak up. Imagine if the church, imagine if the church decided to have confrontation in order to bring about the reign of God, not just confrontation for the sake of confrontation, but confrontation for the sake of bringing the, the reign of God. Imagine if people here, even at Calgary Church of Christ, started to speak truth into each other's lives, even if it was difficult and hard to do. Even if it did mean for some to lose their economic status that they have and profits and hope to gain a little more ground for the kingdom. Confrontation is not always easy. Now imagine, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but imagine with me for a second, if the world, imagine if the world decided to engage when the gospel touches earth. In fact, there would be no more confrontation. If the world was that, then it would embrace it. There would be no more confrontation. Here there would be less to nonviolence. And the ways of Jesus, the ways of love and peace could truly rule as they should. In fact, it would be a little like heaven here on earth. For if the world accepted the good news of Jesus, we would find Jesus on his throne ruling. As we all hope and long for to come soon. So as we discovered in the text of Acts today, the gospel confronts culture. The gospel confronts culture. It's on your hand forever now. That's wonderful. And it is my hope you handle that with care as we are all continually being encountered by Jesus' words all those years ago. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you became man. You stepped into human history and... And then as you did that, you wanted to promote the ways of love and the ways of how it should be. And I ask here that as people are stepping out into their own roles, stepping out into the culture, there may be confrontation that will happen. God, I ask that you would take hold of them and you would take care of them. You would uplift them in this time and that they can truly embody you in all those senses. Father, bless us here. Thank you for all that you do and all that you provide in Christ's name.